Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God, and we're going through Exodus. In Exodus 17 now, we finished Exodus 16. Uh, we did most of it on this show, and then some in the afternoon show. We'll be posting everything as we go, and eventually set this up, and add uh, videos and everything to explain it. In 16... Uh, we addressed what is really a common theme of the Bible because, and, and we'll see this again in Exodus 20 and, and throughout the text, we're going to bring you back to this common theme of the Bible and the gospel of the kingdom. This is the kingdom of God. I mean, originally the kingdom of God was Adam and Eve that were given dominion over the earth. Uh, dress it and keep it. And then you had Cain going out uh, away from them and doing his own thing with the city-state. We had Nimrod. But we also had these other people like Noah and Abraham who were walking a different way than a lot of the other people were going. And, of course, when they were in the bondage of Egypt, which is what these city-states like Sodom and Cain city-states and Nimrod and Babylon and all this stuff... They bring you into bondage. They make you human resources. They make you merchandise. And they do it usually through covetous practices. And Peter tells us that. And of course, it was covetousness that brought them into Egypt with Joseph. And now they're going to be taking, and we've seen that, where they've taken the bones of Joseph out of Egypt. They... How did Joseph get in Egypt? How did Joseph's bones get in Egypt? Well, the covetous practices of his brothers. And then because they practiced covetousness, coveted their brother's position, they went into bondage. They sold him into bondage. They went into bondage. This is the theme. As you judge, so shall ye be judged. This is consistent. This is what divine will is telling you. This is what Yahweh is telling you. This is what the existing one is telling you because that exists in the law of nature, in creation, just like physics and thermodynamics and all the other, you know, laws of physics that we talk about in science class. Except for this is, this is in a spiritual realm that this will manifest in the physical realm. You know, I always say, if you want to know the future, study the past because history has a way of repeating itself. Well, one of the reasons that history repeats itself is this scientific realization that we live in a cause and effect universe. And that cause and effect is is not just chemistry and thermodynamics and gravity and all those things that we can see and observe. We can actually see and observe the spiritual effect of our existence. But we have to be willing to see it. In order to be willing to see it, we have to have a humble heart and realize 
that there is this divine will, this right reason, this law of nature that is built in that includes some sort of spiritual DNA, spiritual chemistry, that we have some sort of consciousness and awareness. We think, therefore, we are. We are outside, you know, a chemical reaction has no awareness of a chemical reaction. And yes, a great deal of what goes on in our bodies and in our minds is the result of of chemistry. We've talked about this, hormones, all these adrenalines uh, secreting in your body give you, stimulate emotions and emotions stimulate those those hormones and those uh, chemistry of the body which, you know, create fight and fear and flight and and anxiety and all these things are the chemistry of the mind and the body working either together or at opposite uh, opposing forces. And what you think can actually stimulate these reactions in your body. But is there something more? Is there a spiritual reality to our existence outside of emotion, outside of the chemistry, outside of what we see as the physical world around us. The spiritual world is still around us, but it is something slightly separate from the physical world. And we can make choices. Now, I admittedly also that most of the choices we make is a product of our environment. What we're told, the information we're given. We're given this fact, this fact, this fact, or this non-fact, this non-fact, this non-fact. And we come to a conclusion because we're over here in what the Bible is talking about, the tree of knowledge. And the tree of knowledge should not be the source of your decisions. It's the spiritual tree of life that is the source of your, should be the source of your decisions. And, and those two things are not the same. So that's the, that's the basic premise. We see that at the beginning of the Bible. But what does it mean, tree of knowledge, tree of life? Well, we have articles on that and, you, and studies on that. And you can go look up that. But in 16, one of the big items that we, you know, they talked about raining bread and murmuring and, and the uh, quail and the dew that came with manna and 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 even the Sabbath. They talk about the Sabbath, working six days. You know, and then earning your rest because you work the six days. And there's principles in that that are actually reflective of a spiritual reality. If you only see the physical concepts that are talked about here and don't go beyond and see the true meaning of the metaphor, you'll miss it. And of course, one of the things that was missed when we looked at Jordan Peterson and we talked about this in the whole show, so we won't go all over it, but the flesh pots. They they tried to make the flesh pots just pots of food that you cook meat in or fish in or something. And so those are the flesh pots. But all throughout the Bible, flesh pots are mentioned. And it's they tell you, you know, let's, let's get together, make an agreement. We, you know, where the city is the cauldron, it is the pot. And we be the flesh. And the prophets talk about us eating 
the flesh, stripping the bones of our neighbor, you know, taking a bite out of one another, lest we be devoured. Even in the New Testament, they use that metaphor. Well, the brothers of Joseph took a bite out of Joseph when they sold him into slavery. And so they went into slavery. And for hundreds of years, they were in slavery. It wasn't rigorous at first, but it got more rigorous. But they were slaves from the time they went into Egypt. They were in a corvy system of statutory servitude, where 20% of their labor belonged to the government of Pharaoh. If you're in any government anywhere in the world and a portion of your labor belongs to the government, you're back in the bondage of Egypt, at least part way. If you're not allowed to own the actual substantive value of gold and silver, because that's all in the hand, that all belongs to the government. If your land actually belongs to the government and you only have legal title, you're probably back in the bondage of Egypt. You know, like you're probably a redneck. You can just go down the checklist. If this is the case, and this is the case, and this is the case, you're probably back in the bondage of Egypt. But Christ was delivering us out. That He was setting the captive free, just like Moses was setting the captive free. But the people didn't know how to be free. They hadn't learned the perfect law of liberty. They had learned about public religion and the Corban of the Pharisees and the leaven of Egypt. We talked about the leaven. Leaven was not just yeast. If you unmoor the metaphor, you will not understand the message of Moses. And if you don't understand Moses, you probably won't understand Christ. But we're way down in Exodus still. <laughs> of course, we've done, we've done a lot on the prophets. We've done a lot on the New Testament. And we've got thousands of audios out. You can get them on podcasts almost everywhere. Uh, I just came across another podcast server or, or provider that had hundreds of our shows just listed there on their page. So there's lots of different people. I mean, we're on the big ones, but we're also on the little ones. So anybody can listen to these over and over again. But what is basically, what is that theme? Again, I put it here on the page uh, for chapter 16 at preparingyou.com. There is a consistent message in the Bible according to the divine will and design also called right reason and the law of nature. That's what, you can reason things out. I heard Jordan Peterson and and the guys doing Exodus talking about reason. You can't get there by reason. No, you can't because you can't. Your reason is often dependent upon the tree of knowledge. But right reason is not your reason necessarily. You might be in conformity to right reason, but whatever God is, whatever the divine design is, it is co-relative to right reason. And you want to get to that point of right reason. So we're going to let a lot of cats out of the bag here, you know, with like leaven. Leaven is not just yeast. You get all the yeast out of your house, you may still have leaven in your house. Pharisees still had leaven in their house. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. What was the leaven of the Pharisees? Was the same leaven that we had in Egypt. It was a system of public religion where you force your neighbor. You take a bite out of your neighbor so that you can have something to eat. You can, you know, that's how you recharge your EBT card. Is you, you take a, a bite out of your neighbor. 
uh, that's how you get your student loans paid off. You, you, you chew up your neighbors. You make them pay it. Then you don't have to pay it. Well, you're, you're going to be devoured. And where will that lead? To destruction. And if you, if you watch the news today, it, you know, destruction may be just around the corner. <laughs> so, but, uh, which is, it itself is not a laughing matter, depending on what side of the equation you're on. Uh, so anyway, I go on to say, as we judge, so shall we be judged. That's a common theme. To change that judgment that you're now in because you coveted your neighbor's goods for generations now in most countries in order to be forgiven that sin of covetousness, which we'll get to in Exodus 20. We must forgive those people that we've been brought into bondage to. We need to actually love our enemies. But we need to test that forgiveness. And the way you test that forgiveness is sacrifice. Sacrifice of pride. Sacrifice which requires that you come together with this intention of practicing pure religion. Pure religion is without that force, without that leaven, without the Corbin of the Pharisees, but only the Corbin of Christ. So that... That is the major theme. We we see that we're moving more and more towards understanding what that is. But we're going to have to, and probably not until chapter 19, where we see where God really starts telling the people. I use that word specifically, telling. We'll get into that when we get to 19. And saying unto the people. So he says to the house of Jacob, but he tells the children of Israel. So why does he use two different words there? And that well, we'll get to that when we get to that. Right now, we're going to start 17, see how far we can get. Maybe we can get into 18 before the day is out. 17, the heading starts with water from the rock. All the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys according to the commandment of the Lord and pitched in Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Wherefore the people did chide with Moses, and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? And the people, they thirsted there for water. And the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? Now when they say cattle there, they're talking sheep and cattle, goats, all the animals, the livestock that they are taking with them. And this pretty desolate area, I don't know how desolate it was at that time, it, it may have had a little bit more rainfall. There may have been a little bit more growing then that the animals could eat. But they're going to need water. And that not salt water. Not Red Sea water. Not Gulf of Aqaba's water. But they're going to need water that they can drink. And he says in 4, And Moses cried to the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto the people? They be almost ready to stone me, to cast me out, to... We should look at that because stoning doesn't always mean hitting people in the head with rocks. 
And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people and take with thee of the elders of Israel and thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river, take in thine hand and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock of Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So who are these elders of Israel? Were they appointed? You know, are they appointed leaders? Today, you know, we always talk about elders because in the New Testament they mention elders. It just means old men because they were heads of families. They were grandfathers. They were the men who may have, you know, they might have ten sons and those sons have children. And so... You know, one family could be a hundred people. And then they did get together. Those elders got together and picked elders amongst themselves. So we don't know the exact number, but there's a lot of people going with uh, Moses. And so the elders of elders, the elders of elders picked. They were organized. We know they were organized as they were coming out of Egypt because of the words that we went over during those original chapters. So, these elders would go with him, but the Lord, Yahweh, went out ahead of them. And, of course, they're following this this pillar, column of uh, smoke by day and column of fire by night, and they're following that. So, I assume that's what went out ahead of them. And it stood or hovered above this rock. And Moses went out there in the sight of the elders so they could see what he was doing. That this is where the water is coming from. And the waters came out. We see in verse 7, And he called the name of the place Masa and Meribah because of the chiding of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? How do you know if the Lord is among you or not? Is it because you get a strong emotional feeling when you go to church, when you bow your head, when you... How do you know? How did James tell you to know whether the Lord was with you, whether you were really following Christ? Isn't it by our fruits, by our you know obedience to the commandments people say well all we have to do is believe we don't have to keep the commandments anymore because nobody can keep the commandments but yet it tells you in the new testament over and over again if you love me you will keep my commandments if you're not keeping the commandments of god you probably don't love god as much as you would like everybody else to think so you have, but then again, we're going to get into Exodus 20 and find out what the commandments of God actually are. So, uh, a lot of people think they're, they're keeping the commandments and they're actually breaking them. It, like they think that they've got the yeast out of their house. Uh, you know, at certain Jewish holidays, they get the yeast out. They have to get the yeast out. Or a lot of Christians think, well, we don't have the yeast of the Pharisees because Jesus says, be Cautious of the yeast of the Pharisees. But what is that yeast? Well, it's the be- cruelty and violence. And it's the biting of one another. In order to get benefits. At the expense of your neighbor, but you get them for free. That's coveting your neighbor's goods. I mean, this is that's logical. 
or we can follow that logic that creating a system whereby you force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare is a covetous system by the very description of that system. Moses is going to teach them they had that system in Egypt. But Moses is going to teach them a different system. But will they learn? But more important than will they learn is will you learn? Are you willing to see the theme of the gospel of the kingdom? So, the next section I I entitled Israel Defeats the Amaleks. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him and fought the Amalek. And Moses Aaron and someone by the name of Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass that Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, the Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy and they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat thereon. And Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands. The one on the, the one side. And the other on the other side. And his hands were steady. Until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomfited Amalek. And his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses. Write this for a memorial in a book. And rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. For I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Now interesting thing about the word Amalek. We'll cover it a little bit later. Is the word Amalek where it came from. what, What it means. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, in these verses 8 through at least 14, uh, we're talking about this battle that occurred between the Amaleks and the Israelites. Joshua goes down to fight. Somehow, Moses has an influence. Maybe he's inspiring the people when they see him up there and he's raising his hands and when his hands are going down. My guess is is that most of the time when you're in battle with a bunch of guys with sharp things, you got your eye on the guys with sharp things. You don't have your eyes up on Moses. But maybe that had some effect on it. But uh, the idea is that somehow there was this other support. Everybody who goes to war always think that they're right. Right now in America, people there's a lot of people talking about going to war uh, in Ukraine. And of course now, this is what we've created as these proxy wars. Like, like we, we have a war in Vietnam or we have a war in Korea or we have a war in Afghanistan and it doesn't come to the shores of America. We don't mind bringing it to everybody else's shore 
but we don't want it coming to our shores because, you know, egg prices might go up or something. But the reality is, is that the, what you sow, you reap. And the idea, we've, we, we're not going to get into the political discussion, but could this war in the Ukraine been avoided? Could it have been avoided? Could the war with Japan been avoided? Could uh, could we have? It's difficult to say. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things that were done to orchestrate the conditions to have World War Two. There were a lot of things that were, were done to orchestrate the uh, the war in Korea and Vietnam, etc. There could have been ways to negotiate them so that we did not have those particular wars. But it, it, you know, hindsight is, is not necessarily, you don't have all the factors when you're thinking about what you could have done. But the, I, I really think the, the war in Ukraine could have been avoided with simple negotiations. But I can't say for sure. I can say for sure that they didn't try. They didn't keep the agreements that they already had. They were all kinds of things going on behind the scenes. But in this case, the Amalaks evidently came to attack the Israelites. Uh, they came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And that's very possible that it could not have been avoided. But we were not seeing how this battle was actually taking place or what was going on there. But one side prevailed when Moses' hands were being supported by other people. And the other side uh, prevailed when he was not being supported by the other people. So somehow Moses was a channel for the success of the people. What Moses is going to try to teach the people is how they can become that channel to a force that will make them personally invincible so that they all have the power of Moses. If Moses continues to do everything for the people, the people will not learn to do things for themselves. And we're going to see that in the next chapter and the next chapter and over and over again. He's going to start putting the responsibility of making this divine connection upon each individual. And we'll see in 19 where he starts to even make a distinction. And and I've hinted at it as we've talked about it before, is that some of the people in Egypt were crying out in a way that God would hear them. They were developing a connection with God so that they were able to do and know to do certain things that allowed certain things to take place. They were plugging in to the tree of life instead of always eating from the tree of knowledge. And that's ultimately what everybody has to go. That is where Christ was trying to lead everybody so that they would listen to the Holy Spirit, be guided by this Holy Spirit, this tree of life, this personal connection with God. It's not an emotional connection. It's a spiritual connection. But there's a lot of artificial connections that are not spiritual that we need to pay attention to. And like I was going to say, Amalek 
meant people who lick blood. Remember those cauldrons filled with the flesh of the people? You know, we, the city be the cauldron and we be the flesh. That's these systems of Cain and Babylon and Nimrod and what Egypt had become, which always raises the level of tyranny, the oppression amongst the people and weakens the people. It weakens the people so much that they can't even imagine actually living in a free society and they start imagining that their bondage is actually a free society. And it's not. It's not a free society. It's where all the people are merchandise and every day they curse their children more and more with debt. Nobody keeps the Sabbath. Everybody is borrowing against the future, borrowing against future Sabbaths where they have to work just to pay off the interest on their debt because they did not earn their rest. They borrowed to get their rest. And it becomes a whole pattern in the society. You know, and it leads to destruction. And we're going we're gonna to walk around this and look at it from so many different angles so that hopefully you'll see it. The, the last few verses of this chapter, Moses built an altar and called the name of it this Jehovah. For he said, because the Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Well, just in the verse before, nobody was going to have Amalek. But what he's saying there is war with those who lick blood. Those who take a bite out of their neighbor. Those who go into the city-state where the city is the cauldron and you be the flesh. In other words, socialism. <laughs> to put it down into a single word, socialism. Socialism is where you're all in a cauldron and you're forced to contribute to those who sometimes are too lazy to work or or make excuses. Oh, I can't. I have a headache. I can't go to work today. I, I'm every time I get a job, I get a headache, and I, I'm always living with my EBT card and food stamps and everything else. That's the Amaleks. They lick the blood of their neighbor. They may even take a bite out of their neighbor. And so that's where the war is really at. If you want to win that war, you need to tap into the Holy Spirit. But you won't even see that that is the war if you haven't already been a little bit touched by the Holy Spirit. So let's go back and review this real quick with some of the side notes according to the commandment. It says, according to the commandment of the Lord. The word there, commandment, it's not, it, most of the time it's translated mouth. According to the mouth of the Lord. But somebody decided just to put in the word commandment there. And they did it about 37 times. Over 350 times it's translated as something else. Like mouth or word or according. But they just put in the word commandment. So this is, this is according to the word of this Yahweh. The Lord. Uh, and... So, 
that this is what they're telling them to pitch the tent at Raphidim. It's not a commandment. It's just according to what the Lord was telling them to do. And and it was because this was the plan to eventually produce this water so that the people would now depend upon the Lord for their water and eventually we'll see for their food. Or we have seen that already with the manna. But the other word I wanted to take note of is the word congregation, which is Ida in the in the Hebrew. And congregation actually means witness. Ida actually means witness in in its original sense. Yeah, it does mean congregation. It's it's those people coming together as a witness. A witness to what? Well, this depends on why they came together. What are they a witness to? Wherever two or more gathered in my name, there also I am. I am is the existing one. We're back to Yahweh. I am that I am. So, if you're a congregation of the Lord, you'll be bearing witness to what the Lord is trying to teach you. You'll be walking in His way. You won't be walking in the way of Egypt, the the way of the leaven of the Egyptians or the leaven of the Pharisees or... You won't be biting one another. You won't even be licking the blood of one another. You know, in order to get benefits. In order to, you know, you're not going to be taking a bite out of one another. That That is absolutely essential if you're going to walk with the Lord. If, you're not, if you are taking a bite out of one another, if you are turning your neighbor into human resources, if you are for selling your neighbor into bondage so that you can have free stuff or get your student loan paid off or whatever. You're an Amalek. You're not a you're not an Israelite. You're not a Christian. You're an Amalek. Because you you are happy with the idea of licking the blood of your neighbor. And I'm not chiding you. <laughs> so like the people chided Moses. I'm telling you. I'm saying to you. And again, we'll we'll look at those words saying and telling and what those words all mean uh, when we get to uh, chapter 19. So, we can actually, you know, there are certain words that we see here used and the people chided in the, it was used in the sense of contending with Moses. And there's actually, you know, the the original word, the root word, is Resh Yad Be'it. But in the text, we actually see Tav Resh Yad Be'it Vav. It has to do with tempting Moses, tempting the Lord, you know, to provide for us, like he wasn't going to do that. But if you go deep into the Hebrew and you see the text and everything, there were some of the people that their murmuring was different than others. You look at the words murmuring as we've looked at before. And some of the, the murmuring is with faith that they, they're querying. And this is one thing we see Moses always doing. He's going to go up to God. He's going to talk to God. And God's going to inform him. And, and he does this when he's in Egypt and everything. So it's not always going up on a mountain and talking to a, a column of smoke and fire. But it's actually somewhere in his heart, in his mind. 
he is conversing with God. He is listening to God. The same as his own mother and parents did when his mother put him in a basket, put pitch around it, put him, made him go afloat in the river. She knew she had to do that because good things would come of it. It's crazy. But she was following a guidance of the Holy Spirit. And some of Israel, some of the people of Israel, were beginning to understand how to pray in that way. Now, they had to be very honest. I'm sure she was very honest in her heart with knowing how they got into the bondage of Egypt. And she was going to start teaching that to her son as she was nursing her son up and had this personal relationship with him as he was growing up. But he had to develop this relationship himself. And in verse 6 we saw, and stand before thee. So this pillar was standing up there before the rock, and somehow or other water came out of the rock when Moses was doing his thing. And, and Moses does this several times, but one time Moses took credit for getting the water, and we're very clearly seeing the only reason that water is coming out is not because of the power of Moses, but because of this power of God represented through this column of smoke and fire that is manifesting through this angel or messenger of God. We looked at the word where they, where he's talking to an angel or messenger of God because the word is translated both ways. And that is where the water was coming out of. And it's making the people dependent Giving them faith by signs and wonders, just like the signs and wonders, just like we saw in when they crossed Aquaba and the Red Sea, which is Aquaba is part of the Red Sea, and they crossed that, and that that seemed miraculous, and everybody believed. But you know, shortly after that, they're murmuring and chiding and and not believing. Because they only believe by signs and wonders. But the people who actually are are beginning to have that interpersonal relationship with the tree of life and, and God himself, their faith will hold up. And, it, you know, like Moses trying to hold his arms up. When everybody is depending upon Moses reaching up to God, it's not going to work. Moses can't do it. He'll wear himself out. We'll see that in the next chapters. And so this is a common pattern too. That if you're in a congregation, Ida, gathering together to be a witness, everybody has to participate. You go to a regular church, there's always somebody who's doing all the cleanup work and, and making everything, all the arrangements and, and they're volunteer. They're doing all this volunteer but most of the people, they just come for an hour and then they go home again. That is you know, one of the things when we first started the network. We started groups where you know, they, people would pick people to represent them to, so that you didn't have hundreds and hundreds of people on the same group. But we had a network following the same pattern. And somebody who I've, I've worked with, liked for a long time, he wanted on the, on the group. And... Uh, but he said, I just want to be an observer. I just want to watch. And I had already, we had already written out that these are row only groups. If you're not going to row, if you're just going to be observer, you can't come on the group. You can just stay with the other 
general congregation until you become a roar. Her, who went up on the mountain with Aaron and Moses, he was a participator. He was a worker. And so everybody has to be that. And Jesus emphasized that. Not those who just say, Lord, Lord, but those who do it the will of the Father. So everybody has to be a worker. So anyway, we already talked about the Amaleks. They lick blood. They also, they're supposedly descendants of Esau. But we know more about them because of what they call the Oracle of Balaam. Called these people who lick blood, the Amaleks, first of the nations. But, like I said, their name suggests that they lick blood. And the traditional commentary of Rashi states that concerning Amaleks, he came before all of them to make war with Israel. So, this was just the, a particular group that was going to make war with Israel. And it's not with the house of Jacob, but it's actually with Israel. And it's very important that we understand that because we're still at war with Balaam. We're still at war with Amalek, those of us. But we fight our wars differently. Not with resistance, but with the Holy Spirit. So, anyway, it brings in, the Amaleks bring in this idea of the era of Balaam, which is the same as the deeds of the Nicolaitans. I have links on the page to other articles so you can understand that Nicolaitans Nothing to do with a guy named Nicholas had to do with Balaam. The error of Balaam is the error of the Nicolaitans. And we explain that there. You can go read those articles. All this is up at preparingyou.com. Just look up at the, up, up the Bible, Exodus, and go to that 16. But Moses builds this altar. And this is really a, an important part of 17. Probably one of the most important parts. I don't know. You know, it's like uh, I was working, I wasn't doing much of the work, mostly fetching tools uh, with my son-in-law. And uh, when we were all done, we got the, he got the truck running. But uh, we had parts left over. <laughs> so, so, but evidently they weren't that important of a part. So, uh, but he got everything working. So you don't want to have parts that you ignore. All the parts are important. And this is one of the things we're going to talk about also in Moses as we get farther in. He uses a lot of funny phraseology and words and stuff like this. He adds a lot of letters to words that are normally much shorter. And there's a reason for this. And, But again, me telling you all these little secrets, uh, which aren't really secrets, they're right there. But things that other people won't tell you. Don't get lost in the tree of knowledge. We're always pointing you towards the tree of life. I'm only telling you this information so that you realize that the information you already had is insufficient. No matter how much information you get, it's still insufficient. Because it's the tree of life you need to be eating from, not eating. More knowledge is not going to get you closer to the kingdom of God any more than more rational thought. Right reason comes from God. You don't get to God with rational reasoning. So, you need to tap into the Holy Spirit. And in subsequent chapters, we're going to see how Moses is trying to show the people how to draw near that Holy Spirit. So that you can hear the Holy Spirit just like Moses was hearing from the Holy Spirit. He's talking to God and he's hearing back from God. What is that actually happening? 
So Moses builds an altar and the altar is part of that process. If these sacrifices were shared with the people, when they had built an altar and they had a sacrifice and they shared it with the people, they would make a memory about an event that also included a message for the people. So we had this battle with the Amalek's, these blood lickers. And they couldn't win on their own. They could only win with the power of God. Didn't matter how many swords they had or how sharp their swords was or, or, you know, whether they had nuclear weapons or not nuclear weapons. It matters whether or not you have the Holy Spirit or not. And that, that is a key message. And he was to write this story down in the book so that you would understand it as a memorial. But he also built an altar to create a memory that this Jehovah, which is the Lord, which is Yahweh, which is the existing one, which is this right reason, this law of nature already built into the system. That if you proceed in a certain fashion, you're going to get a certain result. If you stray from that fashion, you'll get a different result. You'll end up end up halfway across the Red Sea and the water will come in on you. If you're going not according to the pattern of God. If you're going according to the leaven of Egypt. So he built this altar to help people remember. And one of the ways you, I used to tell people, you know, the idea of a wedding cake. We, that's a big tradition today in the world is you have this big wedding cake. All cultures didn't have it, but it's it's creeped into a lot of different cultures now. But that actually comes from an ancient Jewish tradition where when somebody got married, they would make little, little like cookies. And they would, they would be sweet cookies. Kind of like a little sweet bread of some sort. I don't know the recipes. But it was a treat. It was something you didn't get ever, all the time. And why little ones like that? Because you would go around and you would hand them to the children at the wedding. And you would say to them, this is the day so-and-so and so-and-so got married. And then that you would give them the, the cookie. And they would remember that so-and-so and so-and-so got married because on that day I got this cookie and I don't get cookies normally. <laughs> so that was creating a memory. And that's what Moses was doing when he built this altar. He was creating a memory for the people. But We'll get more into that when we return. What are these altars all about? And then we'll start into chapter 18. So, come right back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, we were talking about altars there in the last part of chapter 17. And... These altars are, are going to be revisited over and over again because there's altars of clay and there's altars of stone and there's altars of uncut stone and there are altars of hewn stone. <laughs> and which ones do you have? Which ones are you supporting? Again, leaven was a metaphor. Altars are a metaphor. It didn't mean that they didn't build real altars but or a footstool. That's another word that comes up. 
all these are symbolic of something that is actually functioning in society, doing something in society. Altars normally, or commonly, if you go back in, in those ancient times, they had things they called altars, and they were often where an agreement was made. And when, where that agreement was made, they would sacrifice an animal, a goat or a sheep or something, and they would all eat a meal together to help remind them that we made an agreement today that this is the boundary between us and you. They they didn't necessarily build an entire Hadrian's Wall all the way across Scotland or whatever. Uh, they They made an agreement. We, we're going to be this side of the river, you're going to be that side of the river. Because you guys do things a little bit different than us, but we don't want to go to war with each other, so we're going to make an agreement. And so they have an altar, and they eat something at that altar to commemorate, so that everybody remembers. Everybody doesn't, they may not show up for the agreement, but they'll all show up to, <laughs> For the feast, you know, kind of like, you know, maybe if we gave out cookies when you had your vote, everybody would vote in person. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but uh, the reality is, is that this was about participation, making a memory, making a record that this is a memorial. This is an agreement. And they would make a second. Even the Indians, when we go through that whole process, the, the Indians and their White Pine Treaty. They would have an area. You couldn't kill anybody in that area. They came in with a White Pine Treaty wampum in their hand. You couldn't kill them. You, th- that's, a, that's a peace deal. You're going to have to sit down. And there were areas that were kept. And there would be food, wood for fire. And they would bring food that was stored up to serve there. And they would have a confab and come to some sort of an agreement so that the tribes didn't go to war with each other. And through that process, they had five tribes, six tribes, seven major tribes that were not killing each other all the time. And they came to an agreement. But they had a meal there. They had a place where they would not fight. And, you know, where we would work things out. We weren't allowed to kill anybody in that little circle area. So... This is this actually had a purpose in society to avoid war. They have the United Nations now, but the United Nations has become an instrument of war rather than an instrument of avoiding war. But that's another whole story. So Abel had altars. Cain had altars. Abraham had these altars of clay and stone. And on the page, I have links to articles we've already done on this. Well, they had altars in Sumer. Sumer had altars. They had uh, gods, gods of Sumer, uh, that uh, were people worshipping them. One of the things that these these gods were represented by real people. The the god, the symbol, the the statue of the god, uh, there was a particular god in Sumer, uh, that uh, was uh, there are a number of different ways in which the name is written Nagash, uh, Nashas, and Nashi. Actually, one pronunciation is Nazi, <laughs> but it was a female goddess, and that goddess was providing 
social welfare. Even New York Times wrote an article about it. Uh, it, it wrote it back in 1992. Uh, but I think it was 92 or in the 90s somewhere. And they were praising the welfare city state of Sumer. And, you know, this is where we get a lot of, and since, you know, even since that article that came out back in the 90s, they've unearthed many, many, many more clay tablets written in cuneiform talking about what they were doing back there in 3000 BC and 2500 BC and what the Sumerian cities of Eric and all that, what they were doing. And they're finding all these tablets and they're reading what it says on the tablets. And there was evidently a vast civil bureaucracy which included this temple of Nazi or Nagash. And even though it had this woman on it because she was the caregiver, she was in charge of widows and orphans and needy of society. She was also in charge of weights and measures to make sure that when you measured out the grain for the poor, you were consistently measuring it out equally. The temple was a way in which to redistribute wealth uh, amongst those who had a need so that they didn't starve. And so that, you know, if your husband fell off a ladder, your whole family didn't die out. They had an organized way to take care of the needy of society. And those priests that managed those systems, those bureaucrats who managed those systems of civil welfare, social welfare, they uh, they did this according to laws written down in the cuneiform tablets. They were regulated in how they were to do it. And those regulations came from the top down. So this is redistribution of wealth from the top down where the city-state was the benefactor. But how did you replenish the stores, the grain stores, uh, for the goddess of Nanshe? And I've used several different names here. Because you go to different city-states and you get different different names. But... uh, they write that, you know, in one of their deals, work was a duty, but social security was an entitlement. It was personalized by the goddess Nanshe. That's what he wrote in his articles. Uh, and it talks about her being a benefactor. And, of course, that's is the civil temple refunded by taxation, which is also covered in the cuneiform tablets. Now, This was a city-state. This was literally a cauldron of flesh in Sumer. There are other cities that did it slightly different. Just like Corinth was organizing a system of social welfare that ran through the treasury to take care of the needy of their society so that they would help out people who just fell on... It wasn't to help out lazy people. It was to help out those people who fell on hard times and really needed help. And But the system was regulated from the top down. Moses was going to show you how to build a system regulated from the bottom up. Because that's where the money comes from. <laughs> from the bottom up. And they were going to create a whole system, of course, which we will see, whereby the... The same people that are in the system of courts, higher up courts, the, the, what they call the cities of refuge, the, they are the same people that are operating 
the social welfare system. Now, 90% of the social welfare system was operated locally, not a central treasury, which Jesus talks about. So put your treasure in a central treasury where thieves and robbers can break in, but, you know, contribute to the kingdom of God. That's where you put your treasure. Well, the kingdom of God was a system of social welfare. system, of, But it operated on charity. Not forced offerings like they did in Sumer, like they did in Sodom, like they did in Cain, city-states, like they did in Nimrod's city-states. But it was based on charity. And it didn't all go up to a central treasury and trickle down. It operated. It trickled up. <laughs> it didn't trickle down because... Most of it was taken care of on a local level. So anyway, I'm just giving you a kind of a heads up of where we're going. We'll we'll go back to Sumer and and all the stuff that is going on there and tie that together in another show where we're not going through uh, chapter 18. But uh, one other thing I wanted to mention in this chapter 17, I went over it kind of quick in, in verse 15. You got Jehovah Nisi. Well, what's the Jehovah Nisi? Why why they it's you know, it's that same word, Jehovah, uh, that's normally translated Lord, but it said, in this case, they write it down, Jehovah Nisi. And, and Nisi is another word that actually means like a banner. You know, some sort of um, uh, deal that is uh, that is like your flag, your standard, uh, whatever. And, of course, we have, you know, you, in America, they pledge allegiance to the flag. That's always kind of bothered me. You don't really want to pledge allegiance to the flag. Because they're saying that they were their allegiance was to Jehovah Nisi. Jehovah was their flag. It wasn't a flag. The problem with pledging too much allegiance to the flag is that now you got a guy out there, you know, the flag bearer, and he's carrying the flag, and he's running with it, and everybody's following the flag. This is where we go to fight the war and everything. But then what if he's going in the wrong direction? Uh, and he leads you into a trap. Bad deal. Well, that's kind of what's happening, like we were talking about earlier in the show, is that, you know, everybody thinks they're saving the people in the Ukraine, although... Millions of people have already left the Ukraine saying they're never going to go back again. We've turned their nation into a battlefield all because of a few greedy people who didn't want to sit down and negotiate where the real problem was, which nobody in the news wants to address, which we should be accustomed to that. We just saw that with the whole pandemic thing that we were getting false information mostly from the news people. And they now admit it was false, not regularly admitting it, but they're saying, oh, well, we were wrong about that, you know. Oh, we were wrong about that. Evidently, we were wrong about that and that and that. But we were censoring that so nobody here. The same thing's going on now with whatever news story is going on. Because back to what we talked about earlier with the mountains of Samara, Samaria, you're, you're listening to the wrong people. But if you were listening to the Holy Spirit, this wouldn't be a problem. But you're not. So these altars are systems of social welfare. The early church, right away, we see right out of the box, they're rightly dividing the bread from house to house. Who was doing that before? The Pharisees. But they weren't rightly dividing the bread. They were getting rich. We pointed that out. that they, The quarters for the, the high priests 
were fancier than the quarters for the king. They were living higher on the hog than the king. Herod, who was, you know, he was extremely indulgent as king. But that's what happens. You know, you end up with the leader of your church sitting on a golden throne. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. Jesus never sat on a golden throne. Constantine did. But Jesus never did. Peter never did. He didn't even have any gold and silver. So, I have none, he says. But he had the power to heal. I can tell you stories about that, too. But anyway, we'll go into Exodus 18. See how far we get in the reading. But there's a lot of things to explain in this as well. When Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, and that the Lord, Yahweh, had brought Israel out of Egypt, out of that bondage. The word Egypt actually almost meant bondage. Then Jethro... Moses' father-in-law took Sipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back. He had taken her in. That's a, We could go into the cultural things of what that was all about. And her two sons, of which the name of the one was Gershom. For he said, I have been an alien in a strange land. And the name of the other was Eleazar. For the God of my father said he was my help. That's what it kind of means, my helper. And delivered me from the sword of the Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law again, came with his sons and his wife unto Moses into the wilderness where he encamped at the mount of God. And he said unto Moses, I thy father-in-law, Jethro, am come unto thee, and thy wife, and her two sons with her. And Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, and did obeisance, and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare, and they came into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done unto Pharaoh, and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, and all the travail that had come upon them by the way, and how the Lord delivered them. Again, he's saying this word, Lord, Yahweh, which is is connected all the way back to the burning bush, all the way back to the, the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke that goes out ahead where the water comes out of the ground who is evidently somehow a messenger or angel of the existing one, speaking, he's literally the mouthpiece of the existing one, speaking to Moses. And Jethro rejoiced for all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of that Corby system of statutory bondage. Now, 100% of everything that they produced is going to be theirs. They're not producing much because most of the time they're walking. (laughs) They're traveling, going somewhere else. And they have a lot to learn. 
and we're going to see where they keep backsliding and, and learning a little bit more and we'll have all these stories and we need to reap from those stories the actual message that Moses is trying to tell us by writing all this down in the Pentateuch. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who hath delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of the Pharaoh who hath delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. So, this is, this is the, uh, being acknowledged by Jethro. Now, one thing to note, Jethro's million people have lived there for a long time. They went through the same famine and droughts that Israel went through, the brothers of Joseph went through. But they're not in bondage. They're doing something else. They have this priest and he's still doing something. But we don't even see a king mentioned of Midian. Later on, we will see kings mentioned in Midian. But at this time, there doesn't seem to be a king anywhere in Midian that is ruling over the people. They have a priest, but they don't have a king. And so, this priest is going to give us some information that he is evidently acutely aware of. And I believe that to some degree Moses is aware of it, but he needed this second witness to help him realize what he was doing wrong. And we'll see this as we go down. In verse 11, we see, Now I know the Lord is greater than all gods, for in the thing wherein they dealt proudly, he was above them. Remember, why did the Pharaoh's people die in the Gulf of Aqaba when the Red Sea poured in upon them? Because they were full of pride. They were probably following a chariot that had a flag on it. <laughs> they, they followed it right down there. They weren't listening to the Holy Spirit. They were full of envy and jealousy and all the things that the brothers of Joseph had that got them all brought into bondage. Now, the ones who were not full of envy and jealousy, but at least were following this charismatic leader Moses, but Moses was only there because God heard somebody in their midst. Some people in Israel uh, amongst the house of Jacob that were crying out and saying prayers that God would hear. So it's bringing in this spiritual cause and effect that brought Moses to where he needed to be. Put him in a place where he needed to be. His mother was clearly following the leading of the Holy Spirit. She wasn't planning this out with the right reason or logic, but it was right reason. It just wasn't her right reason. She didn't understand maybe the reason, but she knew she had to put her son in this basket. And it ended up putting him in a place where he needed to be. That's the kind of spirit that you want flowing through your life. Not emotionalism. Not, not doctrinalism, where you believe in the doctrine. Not flagism, where you believe in the flag. We actually believe in the existing one, the real existing one, not the one you've created in your own mind. See, in Sumer, they created gods in their own mind and then they carved them in stone and then they made all these rules and they made all these regulations and they centralized power and the people became dependent on the power and they became more and more tyrants. Which we explain that. Go look up Polybius. But we, we, this is part of that theme. 
This is repeated over and over again in the Bible. But now we get into verse 13. And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood by Moses from the morning unto the evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did to the people, or for the people, he said, What is this thing that thou doest to the people? Thou sittest thou thyself alone, and all the people stand by thee from morning unto evening. And Moses said unto his father-in-law, Because the people come unto me to inquire of God. What God? Elohim, the ruling judge. Elohim, that's what it means, ruling judge. Inquire of the ruling judge, which they're making me the ruling judge. I'm going to tell them how God works. It didn't say how Yahweh works, but how the judgment of God, because they trust Moses. They don't know, most of them don't know Yahweh yet. They haven't drawn near the Holy Spirit yet. They can't decide for themselves yet. They've been in bondage for 400 years, so I don't necessarily blame them. But a lot of them need this help. Now, a lot of them are probably solving their problems. These are the disputes they can't seem to solve amongst themselves. So in verse 16, when they have a matter, they come unto me, and I judge between one and another. And I do make them know the statutes of Elohim, of God, and his laws. So, what are the statutes? The word there is a word that is translated statutes. It's Chekhov, which is just basically Chetkov. You know, it's translated statute about 80 times and ordinance a few times. There's a, there's another word that is translated ordinance and we'll look at those. Actually, we have a whole page on that so we can go study that out. But he's explaining these, the decrees of righteousness. You know, how a righteous law works. He's trying to convince them to know how the righteousness of God works so that they will learn what his laws actually are. And Moses' father-in-law said unto him, The thing that thou doest is not good. Thou wilt surely wear away both thou and this people that is with thee, for this thing is too heavy for thee. Thou art not able to perform it thyself alone. So, This process that he's going through is not good for the people. He's going to wear out Moses and the people. He's going to literally weaken Moses and weaken the people. That he cannot do this alone. So then he says in verse 19, Hearken now unto my voice. I will give thee counsel and God shall be with thee. Be thou for the people to God ward. That's a funny way he puts it. We'll look at those words later. That thou mayest bring the causes unto God, unto the Elohim. Wait a minute. What is he talking about? And thou shalt teach them ordinances and laws 
this particular word there, we'll look at it later, and shall show them the way wherein they must walk and the work that they must do. So the people have to learn how to do this. The people have to learn how to walk in righteousness, how to walk according to the ordinances or statutes of God, whatever that is. We'll look at that more. They have to do this, and they have to do the work to make this a reality. You can't, Moses can't do it all. Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, and rulers of hundreds, and rulers of fifty, and rulers of tens. Well, geez. Jesus made the people sit down in tens, hundreds, and fifties also, didn't he? Or do you even know that he... he that was the only time that Jesus commanded his disciples to do something. That the people had to organize themselves so that they would do the work. So that they would learn to walk the way. That's why he was doing that. But they had to hate covetousness. But we'll have to talk more about that when we return to Keys of the Kingdom. After a brief break. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, we're we're looking at Exodus 18. And Jethro's talking to Moses about him wearing himself out and not doing any good for the people as well. Because they're just standing around all day. Now, they might learn a little bit by watching and listening and talking about what Moses is doing. But they need to walk the walk of justice and righteousness. And this is something that Jesus was saying as well. So, what... Jethro is saying when he says hearken uh, to the voice, uh, to my voice, which we see up there in verse 19, where he gives counsel and uh, God shall be with thee. Be thou for the people to God word. And there's two words here that we see God is uh Actually, the word that we see is this uh, Elohim, which is not always translated God. Sometimes it's translated judge. But it means ruling judge. It means the one who is given the power to judge. In a common law court, they have a judge. But they also have a jury. And a jury is was... Originally in a common law court, it was 12 men. Of course, in one of these Eda congregations, you had 10 men <laughs> and the minister they pick. And then maybe he picked a minister and that would make 12 men. But they could sit down and we'll see this with Boaz and Ruth. They, they got the elders together. That's the men who are going to sit in judgment. That's the jury going to be deciding fact and law and in common law. The people have the right to decide fact and law. The, the jury can override the statutes of men. 
which is, you know, of Parliament even. You know, the famous case that we've written about and talked about, you can go look for it on our page, look up jury, look up nullification uh, at Preparing You, and we explain it. But the jury, and this is in most of the the constitutions of the individual states, uh, it's certainly the Chief Justice of the United States, when it first began with the Constitution, said the same thing, that the right, the literally the responsibility of the jury to nullify any statute they don't think is fair, just right and fair, was in the hands of the jury. The jury literally had more power of acquittal than the state itself. More power to override the statutes of government, whether parliament or congress or state congresses, the juries have a right to acquit a person who committed the crime, but they don't think he should be punished because of whatever, extenuating circumstances. So if a law is passed, like the Conteventicle Act of 1619, which is the one that dealing with William Penn, that said that you can't have church services today. Or somebody made an ordinance, like you can't have church services today. <laughs> Because of COVID, the juries can override that. They can say, no, no, we're not going by that. Of course, there'd have to be a common law jury. And now, how, do, how, does it, how can you tell the difference between a common law jury and the juries that you see in most courts? And, and could you even defend yourself in these courts? And what has changed in these courts? Well, that's another whole story, and we can't get into that. But if you do not exercise your rights by exercising your responsibilities. You will lose your rights. You will lose access to them. You will lose the memory of them. You won't even know that a jury, it's actually in, like in Oregon, Oregon Constitution, states that the jury has the right to decide fact and law. Now, if you go down and ask your local judge, does the jury have the right to decide the fact and law? No, they'll say, no, jury doesn't have the right to decide fact and law. They just have the right to decide the facts of the case. The judge will decide the law. That's what he'll tell you. And I got I got recordings that explain all this. Because I went up to the judge. <laughs> I actually got him to do it in writing. But, um, yeah, different court. Different kind of court. And, and you can read the letters yourself. Just look up jury and then it's linked to the PDFs of the letters, I think, there somewhere. But, uh, yeah, and the fact is, is the reason that people don't have that power generally anymore is because of what they choose to do when they go on jury duty. Because if they all knew their rights, and it doesn't have anything to do with crossing your fingers or anything, it has to do with knowing where your rights are. You're losing them all the time. But to know where your rights are, you need to know where your responsibilities are. And here Jethro is telling Moses, by you judging, you're taking responsibility to judge one another out of the hands of the people. Jesus would later said, you also are Elohims. If you had it in a Hebrew Bible, it would say, you also are gods. In the English Bible, it says, ye also are gods. 
Jesus says that. You were ruling judges. Of course, by that time in the Greek, you'll see the word theos. But theos was a common word used to address judges in courts, in Greek courts, and even in Roman courts. You would adjust, address the judge as theos, the god of the court. If you don't know that, if your ministers aren't telling you, if your mountains of Samaria, your source of knowledge is not telling you that, you're probably not going to understand why you don't seem to have your rights anymore. Why you're worried about them passing some law somewhere that's going to take all your rights away. It's because you don't have, you know, if you went out to find 12 good men, tried and true, (laughs) men like Jethro's talking about, to put them over this matter, you'd be hard-pressed in America to find those men. You know, what, 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 what were the qualities? Able men, it says. Such as fear God. Well, what does that mean, fear God? I know a lot of guys say they fear God. Uh, they think they're men of truth. They think they're believers in Jesus Christ. But they don't know that you also are gods, ruling judges of courts. As a matter of fact, they'll be the first one to raise their right hand and waive their right to decide fact and law. And say that they will only decide the law. Excuse me. They'll only decide the facts of the case. And they will leave deciding the law to the judge. Well, the judge is already owing that he has to decide according to the statute. He can't overrule the statute. If he overrules the statute, he could lose his pension. But the jury can overrule the statute. If they maintain the right to decide fact and law. Now, they can't convict people, but they can acquit people. And if they can acquit everybody who still has a AK-47 or doesn't wear a mask, <laughs> if they can acquit them and say, oh, you can't, can't find them. No, he doesn't have to pay the fine. Not guilty. They can say not guilty. But you don't know anything about that. Because you didn't listen to Jethro. You certainly didn't listen to Moses. And you certainly haven't been listening to Jesus Christ. So you don't understand this. How this works. He says that he has to let the people judge. Not him. So they had to, moreover, shalt thou provide out of the people able-bodied men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness and place such over them to be rulers. That word rulers there, if we go look at the Hebrew there, it's shinresh. Now that, I will admit that often that word is translated, well, maybe 33 times rulers. But 208 times it's translated prince. 130 times it's translated Captain, chief 33 times. Now, if we go and look at all the different places that this word shar, shinrash, shows up in the Bible, in many places, we will find those words, uh, that that word, with additional letters. Like shinrash, resh. They'll put two reshes in a row, a double resh, which has a meaning of its own. You can't tell that by looking at the English translation. 
But you can't tell that by looking at the Hebrew script. And we're, we're pointing it out, pointing it out a lot of different places. And, and, but it doesn't mean ruler. It means chief over something. Not necessarily, oh, Shimresh, Shinresh means that you're responsible. You, you're, you have a responsibility for something. So when we see this reference to this responsibility, this Shinresh, that, you know, over thousands. He doesn't mean ruling over those thousands. He has a responsibility for a thousand or a responsibility for a hundred or a responsibility for fifties, a responsibility for ten. What's that responsibility? That he tends to the weightier matters of law, justice, mercy, and faith. Why didn't they convict William Penn of violating the Contaventicle Act of 1619, when he clearly violated the Cantaventical Act of 1619, 12 men pulled off the street, said, not guilty. Fascinating story. We don't have time for it. <laughs> I've already told it. It's in the recordings. But they decided, heck with Parliament, he's not guilty. They put him in jail for saying that back then. They put the whole jury in jail. They came back, not guilty again. <laughs> And they kept saying not guilty. And they they let William Penn go and kept the jury in jail. <laughs> they could bail out. They had to pay money, but a lot of them were poor. They didn't have the money. There happened to be a rich man in the group. He paid everybody's fine but his own. And he stayed in jail until they finally let him go. That case was still quoted in America for a hundred years and then some. People don't even know it now. Of course, you all went to public schools. So you won't even know it. But there are two lessons there. I just jump right out at me. The rich man saved all the poor men. Paid their bail. Saved William Penn. William Penn was free and all the jury was still in jail. Because they exercised their right of nullifying the decrees of Parliament. Because they saw them as unjust. You don't have that power anymore. You don't have a network of people to do it. Where is Moses going to find these men, able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place them over? Is he going to you know, start taking job applications? Is that how he's going to find it? Or is he going to do something like what Peter did? Look out amongst yourselves. You find men you trust that you think. Fear God. Able-bodied men. Men of truth. Hating covetousness. And we will appoint them over this. This is what Moses is going to do. But they're not rulers over the people. They're rulers over responsibility to the people to attend to what Christ called the weightier matters. Christ called the weightier matters and explained what they were. I've, I've talked to hundreds and hundreds of pastors over my life. Hundreds of people who say they're Christian. I ask them what the weightier matters are. They don't know. I said, if Jesus called something the weightier matters and you're a student of the Bible... And you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And you don't, you can't even tell me what the weightier matters are. I don't believe you really know Jesus. 
Certainly not from reading the Bible. Because really what most people do when they read the Bible is they rehearse the doctrines they have already accepted in their mind. But the way to your matters, just in case you want to know, is law, judgment, mercy, and faith. And in Peterson's examination of Exodus, in their episode 8, Dennis Prager talks about this. He refers to justice in the macro and mercy in the micro. I'm afraid Dennis Prager has a lot to learn. <laughs> no. The weightier matters in the macro and the weightier matters in the micro. Both. But the law is to be in the hands of the people of faith. Not in your civil society. Dennis Prager still lives in Sumer. Even Israel over there in, you know, the Middle East there. That's more like Sumer than it's like Israel that Moses is setting up. And we can get into that. If somebody thinks I'm anti-Semitic, no, I'm just pro-righteousness. And Moses is trying to tell the people what righteousness is. And there's plenty of audios out there that explain this position. But the weightier matters include mercy. They include faith. They include judgment. But it's about law. The Bible is about law. Remember back up there where we read uh, teaching the people statutes. He's going to teach the people the statutes of God and the law. Well, what word there is he using? And and when he's talking about the law, was that in verse 16? Yeah, his law, the statutes of God and his law. Well, the statutes, that's the word I told you before, the statute, although in the text they add an extra yod on the end of their Chet, Kuf, Yod. But the word law, if you looked it up in your regular Bible software program, they're going to tell you that it's the word Torah. But it's actually not the word Torah in the text. In the actual text, it's the, the word Tav, Vav, Resh, Tav, Torah. Not Torah, but Torah. And that extra Tav means faith. And it's not even the end of the word because they also add a yod and a vav on the end of that. Again, yod is that divine spark. you got divine spark and the word for faith and the word for vav on the end of the word Torah and they don't even have the hey in there. No, it means something different. You need to have the law written on your heart and your mind and that's what that word is talking about. In order to do that, you need to start applying the statutes of God in your life and walking that walk. And this is what Jethro is trying to explain to Moses and Moses is trying to explain to us when he's talking about this system that he's setting up, which is a system of courts setting up in the Bible. And when we finally get to it, you're going to find out that those men who are sitting up in those courts are going to be the priests of your society that are also in charge of the social welfare of your society. But again, the power of government is going to be in the hands of the individual people. Because what Moses is setting up is a pure republic, not a democracy. 
You don't elect somebody and then he appoints the people from the top down. He appoints judges from the top down. They tell you what is just right and fair. They tell you what is good and what is evil. Now, you're going to have to decide that. In order to decide that, you're going to need Yahweh. In order to find Yahweh, you're going to need the altars of Moses. Made of unhewn stone. Because each of those stones represents a man. Who is gathered together for the purposes of taking care of the needy of society. And also manning the cities of refuge. Which we don't have enough time to explain. Let's see if we can get down to the end of this. So Moses hearkened to the voice of his father-in-law. And did all that he had said. And Moses chose abled men out of all Israel and made them heads. So out of all Israel. How does he know? Does he know all these thousands and thousands of people? No. Somebody has to tell him who the able men are. Made them heads over the people. Rulers over a thousand. Rulers over hundreds. Rulers over fifty. Rulers over tens. But if you don't understand rulers, you might think that he's setting up some sort of oligarchy. And they judged the people at all seasons. The hard causes they brought unto Moses, but every small matter they judged themselves through the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. So this was, he was literally beginning to set up a system of appeals courts, which he explains later on. Because if, if the local congregation couldn't settle the issue or or two local congregations get together and can't settle the issue if one guy's in one congregation and one is in the other ten. So you had two parties from 20 people. They'd come up with a solution, just like we see with Boaz and Ruth. They decide fact and law right there on the spot. That simple. And Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way into his own land, which was the land of Midian, which wasn't that far away. I mean, we know where some of these places are. Pretty much we know where some of these places are. But he was a priest in charge of the social welfare of the Midianites. People gave to him and he helped redistribute this amongst the other priests and down to the local communities. He was probably already organized in this tens, hundreds, and thousands, which that many nations knew about all the way back to Nimrod. We find records of it. Most common form of government. Most common form of a republic. You have no... Early America did the same thing. When they were seeing the lights in the tower and they're running out to tell the British are coming, that was through the network of tens, hundreds, and thousands. They would go out and tell one guy and he'd go out and tell ten more guys and he'd go out and tell... And so by morning, everybody knew. Except Paul Revere got lost and he didn't tell everybody. But they were crisscrossing, overlapping, so everybody got informed. So guys showed up. You don't have any of that anymore. Because you don't have a social welfare system based on faith, hope, and charity like Christ commanded. You have a system full of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Egypt. Which is why you're back in the bondage of Egypt. And you don't even know it. Or don't want to admit it. But Moses is showing the people how to turn around. And one of the ways to turn around is also to build the altars of God. According to the righteousness of God. But if you're not going to do that, 
then you're not going to be free. So you have to turn around and and do it the way God said. So back then, you know, I mentioned the Midianites were supposedly out of Esau, but they're actually out of descendants of Keturah, you know, according to that uh, book of Balaam. But it was supposedly descendants of Keturah, who was this second wife of Abraham after Sarah died. And he had a number of kids. And uh, th- this is the people. And they had organized over the years and grown in numbers and all this stuff. And these were the ones who were known as the Midianites. And uh, like I said, eventually they would have kings and not follow the pattern that we see mentioned by Jethro, but more along the pattern of Sumer. And this is the common theme where you have these two groups of people throughout the world. Although today, most people are over in the group that is fashioned after Sumer and and Nimrod's Babylon and Cain's city-state and Sodom, which is why you see what you see going places, you know, like people are worried about you know, sexualizing our youth. Prager youth got a video. I, I never even watched it, but I, I can imagine what they're saying. All that is a product of the fact that people like Dennis Prager, and I'm not picking on him because he's not alone in this, don't understand that law, judgment, mercy, and faith needs to be on the macro and the micro. You need to take back your responsibilities. Now, they talk about that. And that's the only reason why I'm even bothering listening to their deals. They talk about people taking back their responsibilities, which is absolutely true. That you need to do it. I'm just not sure they know how far that journey is. But of course, if you told everybody in Egypt how far the journey was going to be <laughs> and all the things that they were going to have to give up and all the things they were going to have to take on in order to get to the end of the journey, they probably wouldn't have go. Which is also why God arranged it that Pharaoh kicked them out. They are not the called out. They are the kicked out. We'll get into the called out later. So anyway, we'll end up going on. We'll do a little bit of review this afternoon of of this. Until then, peace on your house, and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www dot his holy church dot net